You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find courses, resources and a wonderfully supportive writing community. I usually co-host this podcast every week with the very talented Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author extraordinaire. This is one of our in-between episodes, so we have a story session for you. Just you, me, and our guest author of the week. So you'll hear the first chapter of a book that we recommend, usually read by the author, along with some insights into their writing life and process. So think of it as having your own private reading delivered straight into your ears. And this week, I've chosen All the Murmuring Bones by Angela Slatter. This is a gripping, dark novel from Angela, who is well known for her supernatural crime novels, Vigil, Corpse Light and Restoration, as well as her award-winning short stories in collections including The Girl with No Hands and Other Tales, Sourdough and Other Stories, and The Bitterwood Bible and Other Recountings. And this novel also takes place in the Sourdough and Bitterwood Bible worlds. Of course, Angela is also one of our creative writing mentors at the Australian Writers' Centre and an incredibly well-published international author. Now, here is the blurb from All the Murmuring Bones. Long ago, Mirren O'Malley's family prospered due to a deal struck with the mayor, safety for their ships in return for a child of each generation – But for many years, the family have been unable to keep their side of the bargain and have fallen into decline. Mirren's grandmother is determined to restore their glory, even at the price of Mirren's freedom. A spellbinding tale of dark family secrets, magic and witches, and creatures of myth and the sea, of strong women and the men who seek to control them. So now here is Angela who you last met in episode 405, reading from her latest book, All the Murmuring Bones. This is Angela Slater. I am reading the first chapter of my new novel, All the Murmuring Bones, and I hope you enjoy it. See this house, perched not so far from the granite cliffs of Hobbs Head, not so far from the promontory from where once a church was built. It's very fine, the house. It's been here a long time, far longer than the church, both before and after. And it's less a house, really, than a sort of castle now. Perhaps a fortified mansion best describes it, an agglomeration of buildings of various vintages. The oldest is a square tower, from when the family first made enough money to better their circumstances. Four stories, an attic, and a cellar, in the middle of which is a broad, deep well. You might think it to supply the house in times of siege, but the liquid is salty and partway down, below the water level, you can see, if you squint hard by the light of a lantern, the silver crisscross pattern of a grid to keep things out or in. It's always been off limits to the children of the house, no matter how, no matter that its wall is high, far higher than a child could accidentally tip over. The tower's stone sometimes grey, sometimes gold, sometimes white, depending on the time of year, time of day, and how much sun is about, is covered by ivy of a strangely bright green, winter and summer. To the left and right are wings added later, 
suites and bedrooms to accommodate the increasingly large family. The birth date of the stables is anyone's guess, but they're a tumble-down affair, their state perhaps a nod to lately de decaying fortunes. Embedded in the walls are swathes of glass, both clear and coloured, from when the O'Malleys could afford the best of everything. It lets the light in, but cannot keep the cold out, so the hearth throughout are enormous, big enough for a man to stand upright or an ox to roast in. Mostly now, however, the fireplaces remain unlit, and the dormitory wings are empty of all but dust and memories. Only three suites remain inhabited, and one attic room. They built close to the cliffs, but not too close, for they were wise, the first O'Malley's. They knew how voracious the sea could be, how it might eat even the rocks if given a chance. So there are broad lawns of green, a wall of middling height almost at the edge to keep all but the most determined, the most stupid, from toppling over. Stand on the stoop of the tower's iron-banded door, shaped and engraved to look like ropes and sailors' knots. Look ahead, and you can see straight out to sea. Turn to the right but a little, and there's breakwater in the distance, seemingly so tiny from here. There's a path, too, winding back and forth on itself, an easy trail down to a pebbled shingle that stretches in a crescent. At the furthest end, there was once a sea cave, the collapse of which no one can recall. It's a tidal thing you wouldn't want to be caught in at the wrong time. A place the unwary have gone looking for treasure, as many rumours abounded, that the O'Malley smuggled, committed piracy, and hid their ill-gotten gains there until they could safely shift elsewhere and exchange them for gold to line the family's already overflowing coffers. They've been here a long time, the O'Malley's, and the truth is that no one knows where they came from before. Equally, no one can remember a time when they weren't around, or even spoken of. No one says, before the O'Malley's, for good reason. Their history is murky, and that's not a little to do with their very own efforts. Local recounting claims they appeared in the vanguard of some lord or lady's army, or one of those produced by the battle abbeys in the days of the church's more intense militancy. Perhaps one are marching to or fro from the cathedral city of Lodolan when its monarchs fought for land and riches. <clears throat> perhaps they were soldiers, or perhaps they trailed along like camp followers and scavengers, gathering what they, what they could while no one noticed, until they had enough to make a reputation. What is spoken of is that they were unusually tall, even in a place where long-legged raiders from across the oceans had liberally scattered their seed. They were dark-haired and dark-eyed, yet with a skin so terribly pale that on occasion it was muttered that the O'Malleys didn't go about by day, but that wasn't true. They took the land by Hobbs Head and built their tower, called it Hobbs Hallow. They prospered quickly. They took more land and gained tenants to work it for them. And there was always silver, too, in their coffers, the purest and brightest, though they'd never tell anyone from whence it came. Next they built ships and began trading, then built more ships and traded more, roamed further. They grew rich from the seas, and everyone heard tell of how the O'Malleys did not lose themselves to the water. Their galleons and caravels, their barks and brigs did not sink. Their daughters and sons did not drown, or only those meant to, for they swam like seals, learned to do so from their first breath, 
first step, first stroke. They kept to themselves, seldom taking wives or husbands who weren't of their extended family. They bred like rabbits, but the core of them remained tightly wound around a limited blood bloodline. Those bearing the O'Malley name proper were prouder than all the rests. They paid naught but a passing care for the opinion of the church and its princes, which was more than enough to set them apart from other fine families and made them object of unease and rumour. Yet they kept their position and their power, for they maintained the impression of worship for the sake of appearances. They were neither stupid nor fearful. They cultivated friends in the highest of high places, sowed favours and reaped the rewards of doing so, and they gathered secrets and lies from the lowest of low places. Oh, such a harvest! The O'Malleys knew the locations of all the inconvenient bodies that had been buried, sometimes purely because they'd put those bodies there themselves. They paid their debts, made sure they collected what was theirs, and ensured all who dealt with them knew that what was owed would be returned to them one way or another. They were careful and clever. Even the greatest of the godhounds found themselves at one point or another beholden to them. Sometimes an ecclesiastic of import required a favour only the O'Malleys could provide, and so hat in hand he came under cover of darkness, of course, in a closed carriage with no regalia that might give him away, on the loneliest of roads out of breakwater, to the estate on Hobbs Head. He'd take breath as he stepped from the conveyance, then another as he looked up at the lofty panes of glass lit from within, so it seemed that the interior of the tower was on fire. He'd clasp the golden crucifix suspended at his waist, for fear that, upon crossing the threshold, he might find himself somewhere more infernal than he expected. More than one such man made visits over the years, yet men of this sort mislike owing favours to anyone, especially women, and there was a time when females held the O'Malley family reins. And those very same priests offered all manner of excuses, threats and coercions, trying to avoid their obligations. None worked and the brethren found themselves brought to heel each and every time. An archbishop or other lordly cleric was unseated and moved on like some common mendicant, and the smile on the lips of the matriarch was wide and red. It was the sort of loss, an outrage, that has never been forgiven, not in several hundred years, and it was unlikely to ever be. Indeed, the church's memory was long and unsleeping, and each and in each successive generation one of its sons at least sought to find a way to make the family pay. No matter that the O'Malleys had given a child to the church for as long as anyone could recall, that they paid more than their tithes required and supported several almshouses in the city. They even had a pew with their name on it in Breakwater's Cathedral where they sat every, where they sat every Sunday whenever in attendance at the townhouse they maintained in one of the fancier districts. Oh, the boredom during their services could barely be contained, but they kept the form. No, an insult once given to the church was never forgotten nor forgiven, and generations of godly men had devoted a good deal of their lives to ill-wishing the O'Malley's past, present and future. Much effort and energy was cons were consecrated to the cursing of the name, gossiping about the source of their prosperity and plotting to take it from them. 
Many was the head shaken in rue that pyres and pokers were not options available as a means of enforcing conformity in this particular instance. The webs woven by the clan were too strong to be evaded or undermined. It wasn't only the more godly members of breakwater society at odds with those who lived out on Hobbs Head. Those who took O'Malley charity or made good faith bargains with them often found that the cost was much higher than it could than could have been imagined. Some paid it willingly and were rewarded for their loyalty. Those who complained or balked were justly requited. As time went on, business partners thought twice about joining O'Malley Ventures, and the more cynical counted their fingers twice after shaking hands on a deal, just to make sure all digits remained. Those who married in, whether to the extended branches or the main, did so at their peril. More than a few husbands and wives were deemed untrustworthy or simply inconvenient when passion had run its course and were disposed of quietly. There was something not quite right with the O'Malley's. They did not fear like others of their ilk. They put their faith, faith perhaps, elsewhere. Some said the O'Malley's had too much salt water in their veins to be good and God-fearing, or good anything else for that matter. But nothing could be proven, not ever. The dealings were discreet, but things done ill always leave echoes and stains behind. Because they'd been around for so very long, the O'Malley's sins built up year upon year, decade upon decade, century upon century, life upon life, death upon death. The family was simply too influential to be destroyed easily, but, as it turned out, they brought themselves down with neither aid nor agitation from either church or peers. It was their bloodline that faltered first, although no one but they knew it, and their fortunes soon followed. Fewer and fewer children were born to the O'Malley's proper, but for a while they'd not been bothered, or not overly so, for it seemed like nothing more than nothing more than a brief aberration. Besides, the extended families continued to multiply and to prosper financially. Then the ships began to sink or be taken by pirates. Then investments, seemingly shrewd, were quickly proven otherwise. The great fleet was whittled down to a couple of merchant vessels making desultory journeys across the seas. Almost all their affluence bled away, faster and faster, until within a few generations there was just the grand mess of a home on Hobbs Head. There were rumours of jewellery, silver and gems buried beneath the rolling lawns, but no one could believe it was all gone, yet the O'Malley's had too many debts, too little capital, and their very blood was running thin. And so the family found itself much diminished in more ways than one. Unable to pay its creditors and investors, unable to give the sea what it was owed, and with too few of other people's secrets to use as currency, the O'Malley's were, at last, in danger of extinction. The estate used to be carefully tended by an army of gardeners and groundsmen, but now there's only ancient Malachy, barely breathing, regularly farting dust, to take care of things. All the walled gardens are overrun. To enter them would be to risk having shirts and sleeves, sleeves and skirts torn by thorns and branches with too much length and strength. And their doors are sewn shut with brambles. All but one, that is, the one the old woman, the last true O'Malley, uses when she seeks fresh air and solace. In the house, Malachy's sister Mora, 
younger by a little and less given to farting, does what she can to keep the gillings and decay at bay, but she's one woman, arthritic and cross and tired. It's a losing battle, though she keeps her hand in with herb magic and rituals to ensure the kitchen garden continues producing vegetables and the orchard fruiting. There are two elderly horses to pull the rickety calash and be gently ridden. Three cows, all almost beyond giving milk. Several chickens whose lives are likely to be short if they do not begin to undertake yet to take their duties more seriously. Their years of being productive have been extended by Mora's tiny rituals, but there's only so much small magics can do. Once there was a legion of tenants who could be called upon to work the fields, but now they are few and the land has lain fallow for a very long time. The great house is crumbling, and the massive curved iron gates at the entrance have not been closed in a decade for fear any movement will tear them from their rusted hinges. There's just a single daughter left of the household, whose name isn't even really O'Malley, her mother having committed the multiple sins of being an only child, a girl, insisting from sheer perversity on taking her husband's name, and then dying without producing further offspring. Worse still, this husband had no O'Malley lineage, not a drop, so the girl's blood was thinned once again. She's eighteen, this daughter, a woman, really, raised mostly in isolation, taught to run a house as if this one isn't a ruin waiting to fall, with a dying family decreased yet again by a recent death, no fortune and no prospects of which to speak. There's an old woman, though, with plans and plots of long gestation, and there's the sea which will have her due, come hell or high water, and there are secrets and lies which never stay buried for ever. I just love Angela's stories. She creates such evocative settings and complex characters in these fabulous gothic fairy tale worlds. All the Murmuring Bones by Angela Slatter is out with Penguin Random House. Angela, as I mentioned, is one of our presenters and creative writing tutors here at the Australian Writers' Centre, and our students adore her. I'm not even exaggerating. This is what Timothy Adams said after completing our Write Your Novel program recently with Angela. So this is Timothy. Angela had a great no-nonsense approach to giving feedback, which I loved. It let me know clearly what needed work and how to go about fixing it. She gave me a great motivational boost when telling me what worked and why. She also gave real-world examples to the group that were thoroughly helpful and made sense. I couldn't have asked for a better-suited tutor. So if you're keen to write your novel with Angela or one of our other world-class award-winning author presenters, go to writerscentre.com.au slash novelwriting and turn your novel writing dreams into reality. Thanks for listening to Story Sessions of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at writerscentre.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Do connect with us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at writerscentreau, and of course, connect with us personally in our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Alice and I will be back to our regular programming in the next episode. Thanks for listening and I look forward to chatting to you again next time.